Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, Senior Director Kate Holman is with me. Hi, Kate. Hi. And we are joined by Josh Bissell, Program Director for the Children's Advocacy Centers of Michigan. Josh, welcome. Thank you for being here with us. It's 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 an honor and a, and a privilege. Well, thanks so much for taking some time with us. Um, Josh, we're really excited to talk with you today because you um, shared with us a while ago uh, a really cool tool that you've been working on uh, with some colleagues, and we were hoping we could spend a little bit of time talking about that uh, today, and it has to do with unconscious bias in the forensic interview. So can you give folks just a little bit of a background about that project, and maybe we can get into talking about how it can be helpful to interviewers? Yeah, um, so about what feels like a hundred years ago, we had this question, which is, um, what can we do to improve, not specifically forensic interviewing, that's where we landed, but improve the the system um, <clears throat> for um, marginalized and oppressed communities. And um, we brought together like a real think tank, um, diverse, a really diverse group, both individually and professionally. Um, and we decided, well, let's start somewhere specific. And we chose forensic interviewing. Naturally, if I'm involved, we're probably going to pick forensic interviewing. And um, we first thought we would create this exhaustive library of like cultural information and so that no matter who you were interviewing if you didn't know something you could go in there and like like educate yourself and we realized that was really the wrong approach and so really um 200 years really looked more like two years um which felt like still felt like forever uh but where we landed was um sort of creating one tool uh, to rule them all, which was uh, a a training on like why we need to focus on bias specifically as professional interviewers, um, and then um, some resources to kind of guide interviewers in doing it. Um, and the rationale for that was um, we know we already know, and this is objective fact that human beings brains process the world and then we make decisions and bias is like literally the function by which we operate it's how we're able to survive in in the world so everyone's got it and we know from most of our training and forensic interviewing that we're supposed to be intentionally managing bias so that we can conduct unbiased truth-seeking forensic interviews um but there's not a lot of guidance. Like, what are you? In, what could you intentionally do to actually conduct an unbiased forensic interview? And so we tried to just focus there. Um, and where we landed was um, this three-hour training, and then um, subsequently through collaboration with Midwest Regional Children's Advocacy Centers. Um, shout out to Corey Brodsky. He was our representative on that group. 
um, a document called Mitigating Unconscious Bias in the Forensic Interview, which is um, the summation of the actual exercises um, an interviewer can take part in before they conduct the forensic interview, um, no matter who they're conducting a forensic interview with. Uh, and our belief is by challenging how we think about the work before we do it, we're going to take what's unconscious and make it conscious and therefore allows us to intentionally um, do something about that. Um, so I love so many things that you said, Josh, because I think that for one, bias, the word gets a bad reputation, right? People automatically hear bias and assume that all biases are bad and they're not necessarily bad, but I love that this tool helps us figure out, okay, so what are those biases? And then how can we acknowledge them in a way, right? That, that, you know, shows us that it's there and then how can we mitigate it, you know, to the point of the the whole training and the tool um, so that it doesn't impact our interview. So I think that, that that's the piece of it that I, I really love. Um, and I also love how you talk about your journey, getting here, going from, you know, we want to educate everybody about everything to recognizing that that's possible. So it's that it's that transition that we talk about in our training sometimes too. the difference between what we used to call cultural competency, because you can't be competent in every culture into cultural humility. Right. So how can I be, you know, open minded and recognizing where my frame of mind comes from and how, you know, that might differ from another person's based on their world experiences and their worldviews and culture and upbringing and all the things that make us who we are. So um, it, it sounds like a, a great opportunity for us to change the narrative a little bit with that word bias. Because like I said, I just think it gets a really bad reputation sometimes. And for us to, to think about that a little bit more open-minded. Does that sound yeah, like I, the goal? That's, you, you nailed it. Um, and, and really, yeah, normalizing bias is the first step of the training. And, and to uh, allow people like the freedom to admit it. Right. And, and also like own it. Right. Like I, I think I start training now sometimes by saying, look, y'all, I'm really biased. Um, because all bias really is, is a leaning towards something, right. It's, um, some sort of inclination about an idea or a thing. It doesn't even necessarily have to be something like you said, it doesn't have to have a negative connotation. I could be biased towards, um, you know, uh, being like sensitive to the feelings of others, right? That's bias. And that's probably healthy bias. So um, yeah, bias is on a spectrum, just like everything. Um, mm -hmm. What's more important than getting rid of it, which is impossible, is accepting that we have it, and then making sure it's not an unconscious process, um, recognizing our biases. So the bias that I often share in training, because this has been shared on this uh, podcast before, is that I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, right? So like <laughs> I think the Buffalo Bills are the greatest football team, even though they're maybe data to support otherwise, <laughs> um, some years more than others. And, you know, so I share that in a lighthearted way, because I also say, well, think about now, do you have a bias about me? Because I've shared that with you, right? Like, did that create any feelings in you about me? Because I like the Buffalo Bills. Um, and, you know, so I obviously share that in a lighthearted way, but you're right. It could be about anything. It could be about emotion. It could be thought process. It could be food, right? We have bias toward food or, um, you know, liking or not liking it. So it's, it's just that rebranding, I think that we need to do with that word, because it does, it gets a bad reputation sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There's lots That's of common biases we have though. So what are the, what, can you give us any of 
and I know probably the whole thing is a highlight, but any highlights from the the training or the tools just that people can do, of course, can't give the whole training on here, I know, but just can you give us an example, maybe Josh, of what kind of stuff um, is in this tool that you all have worked so hard to create? Yeah, um, the training really like just lines up and ends with what we call this critical reflective practice. That's what the um, mitigating unconscious bias tool really is, is an example of of that. Um, and it's it's a mindfulness exercise. In the training, we talk about why it's important to focus on bias. We do that normalization piece. Um, and then we look at some examples, um, some common ones, and then maybe some ones we we don't think about where bias like really impacts um, the world. And um, we have this amazing child abuse pediatrician in our group. Her name's Dina Nazar. Um, and uh, she really like helped us build a uh, this series of vignettes to ex- understand and expand our awareness of bias in terms of provision of medical care for children. So we kind of tried to use something a little bit, I mean, it's adjacent, but outside of like forensic interviewing to explain what we're talking about. Um, and then we go into, of course, some scenarios and and the critical reflective practice in the training. Um, the The tool itself, and what I love about this tool is that it's simple and you'll see it um, and we can share it after this uh, episode drops, but the it's a two page document um, and it, it, it just sort of summarizes like the why, like why we need to adopt uh, awareness of our bias as a professional skill, right? This isn't just like some, this isn't personal, like this is professional, right? Um, it might be personal, but it's this is professional. If you want to be the consummate professional forensic interviewer, then um, you need to adapt an awareness of your biases into practice intentionally every time you conduct a forensic interview. Um, and what we believe is when we when we combine mindfulness practice with this critical reflection, um, we're going to train our brains to think differently. Um, and so not only will we elevate things from the unconscious to the conscious, but this will actually change the way we practice forensic interviewing. Um, we might not ask even questions the same way as a result of this practice. Um, and so there's prior to the interview and there's a, a we have the series of questions. It's, it's a, a lot of it is sort of like, physical it's um it's like breathing exercises it's um asking yourself where you're at before you start the interview um and you know really asking the the critical question that i think we ignore all the time is um am i ready for this like can i can i go in and do this interview and i mean a lot of us don't really have like the opportunity to ask that question you know we we were talking earlier um you know you got seven interviews in a row what if the answer is no right Mm -hmm. we might still have to go into the interview but rather rather we understand that we're not at our best before we go into the interview than just try to like blunder past that and um ignore that fact and let it manifest itself in our um in our interviewing in an uncontrolled way um i think um and then we so we we start with like the the filter on ourselves and then we shift it to 
the child we're about to work with. And we challenge ourselves about how we know what we know about the child. You know, did that information come from our MDT partners? Did that information come from, uh, you know, an assumption based off of some characteristic of the child or the family they come from? Um, you know, what maybe we understand about like history and culture, is that informing um, what we know about the child? Basically asking ourselves like, you know, to pull out, tease out the objective from the subjective, right? Um, and then again, challenging ourselves a little bit further than that is what do we already think about the kid we're about to talk about um, or about to talk to? Um, and so uh, I think in this way, we realize we actually have things we already believe before we walk into the interview. And and really, I think, and this is this is key, this is not a tool, and this is like this, this is like the biggest disclaimer. This is not a tool just for working with like black and brown children. This is not a tool just for working with someone who doesn't look like you. This is a tool for every single interview you conduct. Because the truth is, like everybody we work with is unique. And our interpretation, our biases are in effect 100% of the time, not just when we can like perceive that visually. So um, just biggest warning is just like, don't just use this sometimes because then you're almost using it in a biased way. Right. Uh, use this every time. Um, well, and I was thinking, Josh, as you were talking too, about how much we talk about bias and assumptions that are made about people with disabilities. Right. So people make assumptions based on disability about what someone's communication capacities are going to be or their ability to answer questions or remember certain things. And we've seen where that changes interviewer behavior, where they try to make questions easier. Right. And I'm using air quotes that no one can see, but you guys um, make questions easier because they think that people with disabilities can't handle it for you know, some reason. So that that's a bias right there. So I was thinking, you know, even before you said like that disclaimer, like this is for every interview, every time. That, that was going through my head because we tell people to start with this sort of like baseline assumption that someone has average expected or normal intelligence because you don't want to go in there selling somebody short, right? So it's like, how do we find this sort of middle ground neutral area that we that we start from, you know, and it has to do with all the things that you're talking about, right? It doesn't matter where that bias is coming from. But we talk about that a lot with interviewing folks with disabilities, because that's something that we certainly see reflected in people changing their patterns of behavior within the interview. So yeah, great. I'm glad that you mentioned like it's for anytime, anybody, no matter what, because that can definitely come up. Yeah. And, and it takes practice. Um, you know, I think when you first look at this document, you're going to immediately, I mean, it's the thing I, I still think about today is like, do I have time for this? Um, and really, it's like, we don't have time not to do it. Um, you know, like the, the, the impact of allowing like bias to govern like our practice is far scarier than spending 15 minutes at least just to read the questions right um i'm not saying you have to spend like you know like 5 minutes on every question and like write it down and journal about it um although that's great if you want to do that you should do that um if you have the time um but honestly if you just read these questions in context of the child and family you're about to interact with, I I really believe, I mean, we're talking about like a, a 15 to 20 minute task at first. 
And then with repetition, um, you already know what the questions are. You might not even need to read the document anymore. It's just going to be how you think about the work. Um, we literally can train our brain to behave differently. And that's what we that's what we know. And this is the tool that we believe will help us accomplish those goals. Um, well, and it, it reminds me a little bit, Josh, of one of the things that I started doing at some point in interviewing is I would, before I walked in to the interview with the person I was about to talk to, I would out loud say to my multidisciplinary team partners, okay, here are my three hypotheses about what could be going on here, right? I would out, I would like put them out there and it became a habit for me because it helped ground and center me into like, okay, there could be multiple explanations for the reason that this person is in front of me. And I, it really helped me to put those out there because I needed to make sure I was asking questions in this open-ended way, considering multiple possibilities of what, you know, what could be happening, which I think also helps to alleviate bias when we don't just go in and get that, you know, confirmation bias that we talk about just asking questions to either, you know, prove or disprove the referral. Like that's not the purpose of a forensic interview. So that was, that was a great thing for me. And it just became a pattern. So I could see how incorporating stuff like this, you know, like you're saying, like it might take, feel like it takes a little time at first, but once you train your brain to just do it, it's going to come a lot, you know, more naturally. And you're going to, it's just going to become what you do instead of feeling like an extra step. Cause I can't imagine some of our listeners right now are like, really, you want me to do something else, right? Like I already have so much to do, Josh. Um, But I think that's the that's how we get better at our craft and our art, right? Is by making these improvements and these adjustments that ultimately um, turn into our constant. And well, I mean, I- oh, sorry, Kate, go ahead. No, please. <laughs> so I, I was thinking along the lines with that, you know, a lot of times early on in a forensic interviewer's career, you're taught to overtly, whether it's out loud or to yourself, go through some alternative explanations for the like allegation that you have on each and every case that you work with. And, you know, I've heard people across the country do this to varying degrees um, over the years, but, but I, I find this, you know, so important to use another tool like this because coming up with alternate explanations for an allegation just isn't enough. Because if you look at some of the questions that you, you have on here, you know, asking yourself, what do I know about this child and their family? How have they been labeled within their system? What is their environment? And what do I like, you know, what are my biases about that? And the thing about bias is it's problematic if we don't acknowledge and address them. So there's probably lots of things that are affecting even myself and other interviewers who are out there um, practicing that we don't even realize are affecting us. So I think it's so interesting that we can spend this time. And like you mentioned, it's 15 20 minutes at first and with increased practice, um, you know, it, it becomes much more efficient as with anything else where we can say, okay, what is our perception about this? Or even sometimes I know as a forensic interviewer, I'm hearing the biases of my team members before I'm about to start an interview. And how do I not let that affect me as well? So having that sort of like external bias and say, no, okay, here I am coming into this interview in a neutral headspace so that I'm open to whatever the possibilities are, whether it's the child's skills and abilities or something related to the case. And I'm not thinking, oh, I need to go in this direction. And I think one of the things that this lets kids do is be the expert in their experiences because our biases tend to get in the way of letting them do that, where all of a sudden 
we're asking questions that we think we need to know for the investigation when maybe That's... it's not applicable to the situation at all. Uh, um, uh, that gives me some feels. I um, I got, you know, alternative hypothesis is um is an is a really interesting concept to me, um, and I think when you're really new to this work, um, it's a it's a nice way of describing sort of uh like how we digest things and 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 how we might prepare for like the interview but after you've done you've got your reps in and you've been doing this work for a while i i mean i really believe that the natural process of forensic interviewing tests the alternative hypothesis and so like the the need to actually write out like two or three which is like when we talk about the grand scheme of life, there are probably hundreds and thousands, right? Two yes, or three exactly. really mm -hmm. seems sufficient. So um, if we're just doing good open-ended questioning and we're trying to elaborate uh, like specific unique incidents and build those narratives exhaustively, we're going to test the alternative hypothesis. Um, so, um, you know, okay. I, I was going to say one more thing about bias, but there's a hundred more things to say about it. If you think, and I, and I, I don't, lately I've been relating to the mental health field a lot when I'm training with forensic interviewers. And I know forensic interviewing isn't therapy, but if you think about the relationship between the forensic interviewer and the child, there's a lot of elements that sort of are um, like similar to the way a therapist and a client interact. Um, and especially when you look at like evidence-based therapies that have like modules, um, you know, the early stages of evidence-based therapy is all about like introductions and setting expectations and ground rules for the therapy relationship. And so there's a lot more similarities than we might want to admit between forensic interviewing and mental health. Um, and when we think about bias, I'm thinking about the concepts of transference and counter-transference. And I mean, I think that's just one example. In fact, you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, but I really, I just don't have bias. I was like, have you ever had a kid that looks like a kid in your own life and had feels because of that? Or have you ever seen something in like the family situation that models something from your own background or your own experiences? Um, these are examples of how easy it is for bias to impact the way we work. Um, and so... I, I just I like to bring that up because I think um, when we can't in our own field, we have to look at um, other fields, similar fields. Um, and I mean, the 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 impact of transference and counter transference is like well researched and well informed. You, you don't go to school without learning about it. Um, so I just wanted to point that out because um, we we have unconscious feelings about the kids we work with um, based on our own experiences in life. And I think that's true for even those of us who consider ourselves kid people, where we mm -hmm. like every single kid that comes in to um, be interviewed. You know, I think for me, I have a little bit of that bias where I'm like, hey, I'm just so excited to be here and talk with you. But I, I should also still acknowledge in myself that there's probably also unconscious biases that are affecting me in my interview process, regardless of whether I like that child or that family or not. So I think it goes like kind of beyond that um, idea of, well, like I feel positively about this family, therefore I'm going to act in a neutral manner. Um, 
while I'm in that interview process. So I, I like what your your example was where you're thinking about, oh, has there ever been a time where you interviewed somebody who you see a lot of yourself in or maybe see somebody in your family? And what were your fa- what were your actions in relation to that? And then you can also think about like the opposite side of that, where you just feel like you're not connecting in some way, shape or form and what sort of actions affected you in that situation as well. Um, it's interesting to think about. Well, and that, that's the spectrum, I think, Josh, that you're talking about, right? Bias is on a spectrum, right? There's like positive and negative or, you know, whatever, however you want to label each end of that. Um, but yeah, Kate, to your point, you could feel really awesome about some of the things you're talking to and that can affect the way that you talk to them because maybe you feel more or less inclined to ask more questions or less questions or you feel more open in your questions because of it. Or, um, I mean, there certainly have been interviews and I think other people can identify with this where I have been like, oh my gosh, please make this end, right? Can we please make this stop? Where just like somebody is, you know, not answering questions, clearly not wanting to be there. I've given them opportunities to, you know, talk about it or not talk about it, not forcing anybody to do anything, but they're just, it's been painful, right? In the sense that just like, oh my gosh, they want this over. I want this over. (laughs) This is not going well. That's going to be a bias and it's going to impact me in the moment um, for sure. And it's, you know, it's hard to know how much do we, you know, sort of hang in there? At what point is it, you know, are we making a decision to end it versus recognizing it's best for the other person to end it? You know, is it our own self-preservation that we're worried about in that moment? Um, Are we pushing too far because we want, you know, want them to be able to tell their story, but they don't want to today? Like, I think all that stuff comes into, we start thinking about ourselves and is that a reflection of us? And then that, you know, that impacts our behavior as well. And I I see that also as a bias um, too. Interesting. Yeah. All the things. I think it's interesting because we're, as forensic interviewers, expected to make a lot of decisions in the moment and use really good critical thinking skills in the moment with kids for whatever situation that may be coming up. You know, whatever it is that's presented to us, which could be one of a million different things over the course of my you know stint at the CAC full time, you know, no two days were ever the same. But... Sometimes, you know, I think we get into situations and we're like, yeah, just use your critical thinking skills and figure out how to deal with it. Um, And we're making those choices sometimes that are reflective of whatever our bias is in that situation with the child. So, I mean, you all know this. um, And those of uh, those those listeners who have been in training with me know this, too. I'm a big fan of practical tools and and exercises, as I know Stacey and Josh are. As well, And so what I really like about this is it's something concrete that I can look at and examine, okay, what are my true biases about this? So then when I'm making those critical thinking decisions within the interview process, maybe I can make it truly what the child needs rather than whatever I think it may be based off of whatever those bias and assumptions are. Yeah, it's and, bigger and than just saying don't be biased. Yes. Right? Like- I was going to, I was going to say to Kate's point. Um, I want to challenge those listeners who are trainers themselves in forensic interviewing. Um, you probably train interviewers to be unbiased in practice, but if you're not giving them like concrete examples of how to do that, it's really unfair. Um, like our brains aren't wired to be aware of our biases, um, or we would all be very anxious and panicky more than we actually are. Um, so I think, um, you know, 
if you're a trainer, um, and I'm not saying you have to use this tool, but like make sure you give examples of how to do that in practice um, or it just won't happen. Um, it won't happen. So Josh, we talked a lot about sort of before and during the interview with this tool, but one of the other things that I know that you guys have been working on is um, something for after the interview as well, not necessarily having to do with bias, but just sort of like that reflective self-check-in. Can you talk to us about that um, some too, please? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, <laughs> I've, I've got a lot of projects and passions, but this is just part of my focus on resiliency and trying to keep people doing this work. Um, and, and I think just like managing bias is a, like a professional, um, should be a professional expectation. Um, managing resiliency needs to be put in that same space. Um, but to be a good professional interviewer, we need to spend intentional time on developing our resiliency. And so this is sort of going to back to the um, the first section <clears throat> of the mindfulness check-in. And it's really just asking like those core questions. How do I feel physically now that I've interacted with this child? You know, how am I feeling emotionally? How prepared am I not just to go on to the next interview, but to go home to my family, um, you know, to go um, back to my own social circles? What am I carrying with me? You know, what really struck me the hardest about that interview or conversely um do i do i feel unaffected by that interview sometimes it's not that we just have all these hard feels and we're we're like stuck or fixated am i am i am i void of of feeling am i like really cold to any emotional experience from that interview because that can be a sign too of impact from the work, right? That like blunting of our mm-hmm. um, interactions with a like traumatic content. Um, and so uh, again, breathing, slowing yourself down. I don't know if you've ever had a really good interview. We got everything your team needed and, you know, they're like clapping for you when you come into like the monitoring room afterwards uh you know cheering i can't say that i don't i don't think i've ever experienced (laughs) uncorked right um and uh but there's adrenaline right that's what i'm getting at sometimes you get out of that room and like you're really elevated um but just slowing yourself down getting your heart rate back to normal um i think um processing intentionally the impact of our work within that first hour after we've conducted the work. Even if you have another interview, another family waiting in the waiting room, you know, another kid ready to go, like give yourself five minutes, 10 minutes if you can, but five minutes just to slow down your breathing and ask those three questions to yourself. Um, There's enough time for that. Um, And Josh, I wonder if you can talk more about the significance of doing it sooner rather than later. Why can't I just wait until the end of the day, once I finished all my interviews to sit back and process things. <laughs> because we're, we don't have good memory. We know that, we know that human beings have really crappy memory. Can I say crappy? Um, oh yeah. We're rated all right, like triple X, right, Manny? We can say whatever. We want. <laughs> <laughs> we've got, we've got really crappy memory. Um, and, and honestly, we don't want to remember the traumatic 
content we've been exposed to. You know, our brains have defense mechanisms. So the longer we've been, um, the the longer the latency period between our exposure to the time we spend to like sit and process, um, the harder it is to actually access reliably how that work might have impacted us in the moment. When it's really fresh, that's our best opportunity to really think about it um, and and mitigate that impact. And it's not it's not erasing. It's not um, it's not um, uh, an attempt to um, you know f- just like be able to move past, but move with the experiences. Um, and um, and just again not let something rest and live and fester in this case in our unconsciousness um but have it be elevated in something tangible that we can actually manipulate until a day two days two weeks go by or maybe if you're more like me a year goes by and now all of a sudden you're at some kind of resiliency training at a conference and they're trying to tell you to do all these things and you're like i got way too much baggage to unpack now um i'll try to do it for yesterday like the more time you let go, the less control you'll have to actually be able to like work with those experiences. Um, so that's that's sort of the that's the plea. That's that's why I'm pleading for immediate. Um, you know, <clears throat> and I think and I think what we'll find is, and if we can encourage that as not just um, interviewers but as supervisors, and you know, build that into policy. If you're like a administrative professional listening to this call this is a great organizational policy if you're building out like your scheduling system um you know to actually create time that support professionals to do this i i get directors calling me all the time about the revolving door at their cac's and at their programs um like what do i do um so and you know i think building 10 minutes into scheduling with this expectation that interviewers are going to check in with themselves and you give them the tools to do that check-in that's not a lot of that's not a lot of dollars you have to add to your budget right um, well and I, I love what, what Kate said about this being concrete tool right and I see that on on both sides so we're talking about the beginning of the interview you know beforehand during and then afterwards the things that we can do because I think for so long we've been hearing things like okay don't be biased and make sure you take care of yourself but nobody actually tells you how to do that, right? There's no concrete tool that tells you, okay, so this is how you make sure that you do your best, right? To reduce your biases and acknowledge them. And this is how we can spend some time. The really tough stuff you just listened heard. Um, so I think that having these concrete tools can be, be really helpful. Um, and I, I'm just reflecting, I was doing, um, and I'm sorry if I've shared this story before, but I was doing my a thousandth interview where I had just done my thousandth interview because I always kept track so that when I you know was testifying I could say I've done X number of them. Um so it's it's a few more than a thousand now, but I remember it was my thousandth interview. And uh the police detective I was working with came in and he goes and we found out and he was like, Wow, there's a lot of shit in your head. And I was like, Yeah, there is a lot of shit in my head. <laughs> but it's and it's so funny because we, we all have a lot of shit in our heads. But I think that if we reconcile more often, right, and to your point, Josh, the burnout, vicarious trauma, the stuff that's definitely going on, not just for forensic interviewers, but for the other multidisciplinary team members that we work with, you know, we can't, you know, possibly 
expect that forensic interviewers need this and not acknowledge that um, victim advocates and mental health professionals and law enforcement and, you know, everybody else, prosecutors, everybody else that we work with, everyone on our MDT, we would hope would have an opportunity to do these kinds of exercises as well. But um, it's just a matter of investing the time. And I think that that's investing the time so that it becomes standard practice so that it becomes normalized um, and people can use it every day, maybe even without acknowledging it, that ju it just becomes the norm that you get a little time before and a little time after to reflect, collect yourself, whatever, you know, whatever you need to do. Um, and it's going to make you a better professional and ultimately going to serve our clients better as well. I love that. And I'm so happy you just uplifted it to the other professionals interviewers work with, because the one thing we kept saying as we were developing this tool is like, this is for everybody. Like anyone can do this. You don't even have to work in a trauma exposed environment to apply this to your work. Right. If you work with people. This isn't a, you know, this is a good exercise. This is an exercise for people working with people um, no matter what the context. But I really do believe those other partners could use this tool too. Um, and um, you know, it really it comes down to habit formation, right? Like, why do you brush your teeth three times a day? Um, it's not because you know you should. It's because you've probably done it. You know, if you're a 35-year-old listening to this call, you've probably done it for the past 34 years, and it's ingrained in your routine. So let's routinize, um, you know, checking why we believe the way we do about people before we work with them. Um, and just add that to our routine. We'll make it like brushing teeth. Um, and, you know, I, I tend to oversimplify things, but I really, really believe um, if you want to work well with others, this is the this is the best way to do it. Um, there's uh, there's another component to this, too. Um, and I this is I give all the credit to MRCAC for uplifting this, um, but incorporating a discussion on this in your peer review, your forensic interviewing peer review too. Um, and I think this is another way as professionals, we can support this skill development in others um, is to ask some of these questions to interviewers um, when they come to, the, uh, to that peer review. I, we focus so much on what happens in the interview room. And then sometimes we do a little bit to talk about like, well, what does pre-interview look like for you? How do you talk to your team after and before an interview? Um, but how often do we always, and I'm talking about always, um, have, like check in with them and say, like, were you able, I'm going to read straight off the document, were you able to check in with yourself about what you knew or believed about this child prior to the interview to help you get to a neutral space, right? Mm -hmm. Like we can, we can add it to our peer review rubrics. Um, and I think just another example, that's how we'll, we'll really like routinize this practice for interviewers. Um, peer review is precious time, but I'm only asking for you to add one question. Um, and sometimes this is not a judgment on anyone particularly, but have you ever gone to peer review and felt like there's a lot of waste of time talking about like tone of voice or um, like how people, um, their, your affect is so good in the interview room, right? Like mm -hmm. let's, Let's we can cut away like some of that 
and maybe add something really substantive here. Um, yeah, dive a little deeper. I also think part of this, Josh, is going to be, and this is true in peer review all the time, creating that culture where people feel safe to both ask and answer that question. Because I think that some people, until it becomes more standard that we ask these kinds of questions, may feel, you know, I don't know if attacked is the right word or may feel defensive if they're asked that kind of question, if they didn't engage in this practice. So I think that's the other piece too, as we think about incorporating this is like making sure we all have the same definition of what bias is, right? Because it does, it gets that bad reputation. So making sure that maybe teams have been educated or that as we incorporate it into peer review, thinking about, you know, the training that you're talking about, thinking about having this document in front of us. Um, it's not just one of the pieces that you're saying. It's like, oh, just like you're saying, we need to have policy. We need to have scheduling. We need to have a culture that creates an opportunity for this. We need to acknowledge it in peer review. You know, it's it's not, oh yeah, I guess we'll start asking it in peer review and that's it. That's not good enough. It needs to be all the things we're talking about in order to yeah. really make this big um, systemic change. And, yeah. and it seems um, to me too, and maybe it's two questions, Josh, how you can kind of address some of these bias and assumptions within a peer review practice, but also the resiliency piece too. Um, you know, how often do we sit there and talk in an interview about how we were feeling in whatever moment or after the interview was uh, was over, how were we feeling um, after working with that family? Because I know as forensic interviewing professionals, a lot of us are extremely selfless and we always look at the kid. And so Mm -hmm. when we're in that interviewing format, a lot of times what we do is we say, oh my gosh, that kid was so great. They were such a great narrator. And then all the compliments are about the kid rather than the things that the interviewer did. And I think some of that too can come into us reflecting not only on our interviewing skill and practice that helped those kids get to that point, but also that piece of, how was I doing in this scenario and making that something that's a little bit more commonplace for us rather than feeling like we got to like shove it down and put it in a box to the left um, and say, Oh yeah, I do so many of these all the time and I'm totally fine. Um, And maybe you are, maybe you are totally fine. And I think that that is 100% okay too, but having that overt exercise of checking in with ourselves and also checking in with each other, I think could be really powerful for us as forensic interviewers and promoting longevity in the field. Yeah, and I mean, have you do you ever hear um, interviewers uh, or talk to interviewers who uh, describe to you that they feel sometimes like they're not allowed to be very human when they're as an interviewer, that they mm-hmm. have to be stoic and stalwart and not have feelings, um, you know, and like that's part of the job, and I think that's why we see such you know, bad burnout and vicarious trauma in this profession. Um, This allows an opportunity for us to be human again, um, to check in with each other and check in with ourselves. And, um, and, you know, I had an interview the other day who felt, they literally told me, I'm not cut out to do this work because it really hurts. Like it hurts to hear these experiences. And, you know, like I'm like, they were really sad about that. about like just everything they were hearing but they're such a good interviewer and their skills are so amazing and I just told them I was like no you want to feel that way forever that's that's what that's what motivates you to be a good forensic interviewer like it's okay to be impacted by this work um but there's there's this 
concept out there. Not everyone, but there's this concept out there that we we have to be unaffected by this work um, to do it to do it well. But it's actually I say in training sometimes if they could create robots to do our job, they would have done it already, right? Like we can't lose the humanness of what we do, but we also can't lose ourselves in it, you know, either. And um, creating that longevity, I think is really important, but it, it comes from these conscious behaviors, which I think is so important. I did have a dream the other day that there was like an AI chatbot that was going to take over forensic interviewing. I mean, um, I guess it's not totally unrealistic. <laughs> It could totally happen, but for now, they still need us, so we'll continue to do um, do our work. Well, Josh, thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking about the great tools that you've been working on with, um, sounds like your colleagues and folks outside of Michigan as well. So um, like you said, we thank you for sharing it with us. We'll be sure to share it um, on a platform where our listeners can access it, and uh, hopefully folks will use it on a regular basis. So thanks again for being with us. Thanks so much. Um, I just uh, I encourage everyone to figure out how to make this work in their practice. Doesn't have to be exactly the way it's written on this paper, but adapt a technique intentionally and formally um, into your routine. Um, and the ex the ecosystem you exist in will improve. Well, I think our listeners are going to have a lot of fun uh, figuring that out for themselves and for their teams. So thank you again for uh, hanging out with us today, Josh. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.